Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a kind of important topic with us today, how to save life on earth. Our guest is Michael Meta Webster, and he's the author of The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth, and he's got both hopeful and challenging news about the possibilities and ways we might mitigate the damage of the sixth great extinction on Earth. Michael knows how it can be done and does work to bring species back from the edge of extinction, or even after, and he knows the nitty-gritty of getting this done. With decades of working on the ground, studying and protecting diverse species, Michael is now a professor of practice at NYU. There is an extended version of this program on northernspiritradio.org with content we just couldn't fit in 55 minutes, so check that out. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. Michael Meta Webster joins us via Zoom from Manhattan, New York. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And you're coming to us from the campus of NYU in Manhattan. How long have you been there? This is my second month. I just started here on September 1st. Doing what? So I'm a professor. My specific title is Professor of Practice, and I'm in the Environmental Studies Department here at NYU. I saw that phrasing, professor of practice, and I was trying to figure out what that means. I mean, that means you're not good at being a professor? It means I come at being a professor from an unusual path. So most people who become professors do it by being academic scientists, at least science professors, where they stay in universities, they do a lot of research for their whole career. I started that way a long time ago, but then I decided I didn't want to be doing that kind of research. I actually wanted to be working more directly in conservation. So I spent 20 years at various organizations working on applied conservation problems, and now I'm coming back into the university environment. So rather than being sort of a normal research-oriented professor, I am approaching my professorship through sort of the lens of applied work. And do you have kids and do you tell them stories? I know you do have kids because some of the things in the book tell me about some of your kids. Have you been a storyteller of a dad? Yes, particularly around science. So I just have three kids. One's in college, two of them are younger. And yeah, I tell them stories all the time, particularly about things in nature and science to help them learn about the world. I ask you this because one of the very best things about the book, I think it's the advice you got. I don't know how to pronounce the name, Matt Squillante. 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 His advice to write the book as a collection of stories, not a textbook. It's spot on. It's wonderful. It makes this book so incredibly valuable to a wide number of people. So tell Matt I said so. I will certainly do so. I'll share a copy of this interview with him. He'll be delighted. And so, folks, when we're talking about the rescue effect, the key to saving life on Earth, it is stories. It is not dry research. It's not erudition with all kinds of terms that are going to kill you. You do, Michael, use the necessary terms to communicate these things. But because it comes up in terms of story, in terms of swimming by a coral reef or talking about tigers or any of the things that, and, you know, even talking about trees, chestnut trees, 
all of these things, you tell it in story form and it made it so palatable. My wife is just wants to rip the book out of my hand so that she can read it because you've written such a captivating collection of insightful ideas. So tell me where the idea for the book came from. So the idea for the book comes from working in conservation for a long time and, you know, really a few different observations. And one of them is that people are often depressed in conservation. And, you know, I've run conservation organizations before and people often say, you know, I'm not sure what we can do. I'm not sure how we solve these problems. It all seems so big. And I understand where that's coming from. There's plenty of bad news in conservation. There's plenty of things that we're worried about. But for me, there's also lots of good things about how nature is dealing with change, as well as things we can do to help nature as it's adjusting to the world as, as we're changing it. And so part of my reason for writing this book was because I wanted people who were worried about the future of life on earth, who were worried about the future of nature, to have some of the sort of requisite information about what's actually going on in our planet right now. And you mentioned the sort of the stories that, you know, I I really appreciate that feedback because that was very deliberate, which was I was interested in helping people understand enough of the biology, enough of the conservation, but not overwhelming them, right? Because you can describe these things in very scientific terms and you can have it be very sort of dull and dense. Instead, I wanted to bring people along, invite them sort of inside what it looks like in conservation and science and have them see it for themselves and sort of experience it as part of that story with the hope that, you know, after somebody's read this book, they'll have enough of their sort of own information to make up their own mind about what they think about all these different challenges that, that we're facing, as well as understand what nature is capable of on its own, hopefully at a, at a new level. When I read the promo on the literature that was sent to me before I decided to read your book, I had a little bit of foreboding. Again, the title of the book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. And some of it, I mean, where you talk about the various implementations, how evolution, how survival happens through these various rescue effects. I was afraid you were going to try and say, we don't have to clean up our mess or take part in this because nature will take care of itself, which there's some basis even for saying that. I have to say I was much more pleased with where you did come down from. You probably have been told by people, however, like we could just do what we do. It's like, you know, the, the mar- you got to follow the market. So if it makes us a buck, that's all we have to worry about. Things will work themselves out. Are there people like that that you've met who basically said, we don't have to worry about all these stupid species. They'll deal with themselves. Sure. And honestly, a lot of the things that we discuss in conservation are esoteric to a lot of people. They're not necessarily related to their everyday concerns and interests. And so I'm sure there is some segment of the population out there that doesn't see like saving species for conservation as a whole as a high priority. But as you point out in the book, my message is very much not this nature is going to be just fine. I actually am really in awe of what nature can do to rescue itself, hence the book and the focus on the rescue effect, which is that inherent ability of nature to look after itself. But at the same time, if we leave this entirely up to nature and nature's own abilities, we're going to lose a lot from this planet that I frankly don't want to lose. Background to this is scientists estimate that there have been five mass extinction events in the history of the Earth. I think that's correct. Maybe there's updated information and that we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction event. Can you tell me something about the previous five? 
that isn't as much my expertise area, but what we tend to know from history is that there's a fossil record. So we see species based on what fossilizes in rocks. And we find these periods where over a relatively short period of time in geological history, the species that were once there, many of them are no longer there in that system. They just basically disappear from the fossil record. And for each of these major events, there are actually many smaller events that scientists have seen as well beyond the five big ones that you're talking about, where smaller a smaller share of species disappear. The one that gets the most attention and we potentially know the most about is the one that brought about the end of the dinosaurs, where the understanding is that that was caused by a giant chunk of rock that hit the earth just north of where the Yucatan Peninsula is today. In fact, there was even news on this this week talking about the tsunami that would likely have been generated by that impact. And the scientists who published this paper were estimating that the tsunami was a mile high, which is just absolutely incredible to think of. That was an instantaneous effect on the earth that would have caused, you know, volcanoes and earthquakes and giant tsunamis and many things would have been killed instantly. That also would have changed the atmosphere because of all the particles and dust and moisture that would have been put into the atmosphere. It probably would have created a nuclear winter type situation you know, once the skies were opaque or uh, not letting in much light, the plant life would have died, the things that relied on the plants would have died. And so many, many species were lost in a very short period of time, geologically speaking, at that particular event. The event that we are in today is different from that, because it's not a big rock hitting the earth. The things that are causing increased rates in extinction right now are us. And the growth of human populations, the spread around the world, the movement of other species around the world, the using of resources, now the changing of climate. But one of the points that I try to make in the book is that we're at the very beginning of this. As of right now, we've lost very, very few species on Earth compared to how many species there are. It's a really tiny fraction. And so we're in a position where we can extrapolate forward and say, okay, what do we want this future to look like? There's one future where we burn through a lot of the diversity on Earth and we cause you know, rampant extinction, and that is the, the sixth extinction that you're referring to. But there's another scenario we can choose here. We have agency to make another set of decisions and help most of the forms of life that are on the planet make it through. So when you're talking about the key to saving life on Earth, you're talking about, I think, humans using the natural powers that, the, that nature already has, that capitalizing it and get us getting out of the way and or maybe being concerned enough about nature to mitigate our effects on nature. Yeah, I think that's right. There's really two pieces. So the rescue effect itself is a powerful thing in nature that's working all the time to help organisms persist. And that's a beautiful thing that we should be grateful for that it exists. So in you know nature left alone, that is the key to saving life on earth. But because we are causing so many changes on the planet, we have this whole other set of options for trying to boost, facilitate the rescue effect and allow it to work better, faster for organisms that are getting caught in you know, a struggle for existence. Well, let's talk about some of the processes that together are referred to as rescue effect. Uh, the rescue effect actually originates in the 1970s, the, the term. Yeah, so it came from a group of ecologists who were studying how small populations, if you think of like a little island off of the mainland, little island, maybe it's got a population of birds on it, but it's small, so the population is not very big. And what happens in really small populations is that they tend not to be particularly good at sticking around. You might get a storm, you might get a disease, something that comes through and you know kills off every single one, and suddenly that bird doesn't exist on the island anymore. 
these researchers described the rescue effect as when some birds from the mainland happen to fly out to the island and either add to the population or recolonize the island. That that small population is essentially getting rescued by a nearby one that's larger. I've used that term more broadly than that to talk about all the different ways that nature does this, where populations and organisms, when they're faced with some kind of change or stress in their environment, how do they rescue themselves? And so you rightly point out that the rescue effect is the umbrella for that tendency in nature. And that underneath that umbrella, I've identified some six different processes that are occurring, oftentimes occurring simultaneously. In addition to a couple more that you go on to talk about where we might get involved essentially Jurassic Park type events. We'll, we'll get to those eventually. So demographic and reproductive and genetic are three of them, but you don't really just talk about them as dry bullet points. You talk about Bengal tigers to start out with. Who doesn't love a Bengal tiger? And obviously there's a number of poachers who seem to only see it in terms of dollar values. I'm not exactly sure what tigers are used for, I, except that I understand in Tibet, they were used as clothing. Yeah. So tigers are an interesting story. And you know, the reason I started with that chapter is because tigers could help illustrate some parts of the rescue effect in ways that are sort of visual and you can help people understand. So there's a bunch of things to unpack in the question that you just asked. One is how that works. But before I go there, I just want to talk a little bit about the people who were poaching these tigers. Tiger poaching is nothing new. And today, tiger poaching is largely done for a black market trade in tiger parts, where people want to possess parts of a tiger for a variety of different reasons, for status, for power, to try and take on some element of that animal in themselves. And so it's used a lot in various forms of folk medicine. And in the case you were talking about in Tibet, it was being used as a sign of social status to be able to wear the skin of this, of this particular animal. The people who were hunting these animals in that story were people who really had very few other economic alternatives. They were a group of people that had been socially ostracized for a very long time, and they'd long made their living by hunting. Now, India has changed since they were sort of preeminent hunters and the ability to hunt has gone down. But for this group of people, they didn't have access to, to schools. They couldn't read or write. They, they had very, very few opportunities. And so when they were presented with an opportunity to make some money by hunting tigers, it fit with the kind of activity they'd done for a long time. And I don't actually see them as necessarily nefarious actors. I think they were actually people who were struggling to survive and trying to find a way to survive. Interestingly enough, when I was in India earlier this year, I got to meet with that same group of people in India. And the interesting part is that since that tiger poaching was happening, they were able to basically make a deal with the government and with conservation organizations to give up hunting in order to have sort of more access to the economy in India. And so they've been given some land where they've been able to settle. Their kids are now going to school and they're learning to read and write. And some of the people that were formerly poachers are now acting as nature guides. I mean, who knows the jungle better than people who made their living previously poaching in it? So I actually went on a hike with some of the folks who were doing this poaching. And, you know, I asked them, what's better, this sort of new life where you get to be guides versus being back living in the jungle and hiding and hunting things like tigers. And they unanimously and, you know, in unison offered that this current lifestyle is far better for them. And so what they were looking for, what they really needed was an, sort of an avenue out of poaching with an alternative. And as a consequence, the park where they were once poaching those tigers, the tigers have returned in enormous numbers. Enormous, not being enormous in global sense, but locally, yes. Yeah, the densities are super high in there right now. And I got to visit the park and we saw tigers every day. 
And the Dalai Lama had a role to play in diminishing the poaching as well. I, I loved that little clip in the book. Mention what happened. So Tibetans were wearing these tiger skins, you know, as part of festivals and again, as a social status. When this was explained to what was going on to the Dalai Lama, he basically said in no uncertain terms, this is not an appropriate practice and you need to stop. And it looks like it worked because the cultural practice of wearing those skins in Tibet, it looks like it disappeared almost overnight. I think to some degree, Pita maybe had a bit of that effect on people wearing a mink stole or something like that. Uh, just convert it from a sign of prestige to a sign of shame. The way we think of animal skins, you know, whether it's one of the pioneers of this country wearing a coonskin cap or or beaver caps, which I think were under, were more common. The outlook has changed. Now you've been alive long enough to have seen some of the environmental ethos change a bit. So James Watt in 1986, he was Secretary of Interior under Ronald Reagan. He wanted to get rid of our parks, our national parks, because, you know, Jesus is coming in another 20 years or within our lifetime. So we don't need to preserve things for the future. So how much have you seen change in your lifespan about how people think about environmental, about species, about preservation of or conservation in general? I think it's changing pretty quickly right now. And this is actually one of the themes in the book, which is how is conservation as a field shifting and how do we need to be thinking about it as we move forward? Now, I don't think we should be necessarily opening up the national parks for willy-nilly development. I actually think national parks are a great idea and love visiting them myself. But I do think we need to be, to some extent, thinking about these parks and thinking about nature in a different way. Because the values and the ideas that went into the creation of things like national parks was this sort of notion that you could take a piece of usually land, because all the early national parks were land-based, and essentially preserve it you know, in time immemorial. By not going in there and cutting down the trees or taking the minerals or using the water, you could sort of hold an ecosystem in its sort of primeval state right? And this wasn't necessarily a good idea at the time because these ecosystems were not necessarily in primeval states. They'd been occupied by people for, you know, many thousands of years and affected and they weren't, they weren't you know, these truly sort of wild, untouched ecosystems. So that part was wrong. But what we're finding now, especially with things like climate change, is that it's not really possible to hold an ecosystem in the same state. Because the, you know, for any ecosystem, it's driven by many things, which species are present, what the climate is like, including rainfall and temperature. And those things are all changing. They're changing because we're moving species around the planet. We're changing because the climate is changing, which is, you know, uh, affecting rainfall and temperature and fire regimes. It's also causing some species to move to new locations. And so we're starting to get to this point where when you look at ecosystems and think about what they used to look like, they're looking less and less like that today. And that process is only going to continue. And to some extent, we can try and, you know, protect things we care about, like, you know, trying to control fire around sequoia stands in the Sierras because we love those big old trees and want to protect them as long as possible. There's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is that all ecosystems today are in a process of changing. And until the climate stabilizes, there's no reason to think that they're going to like hit some point and sort of stop changing. So we've got decades to potentially centuries of ongoing movement in these conditions. And what we have to realize in conservation is that means that we're going to have to accept some turnover in species. We're going to have to accept some changes to how ecosystems work and really figure out where do we want to intervene and where are we okay with allowing those changes to happen as part of this sort of great reshuffling of life on earth that we've set in motion? 
you know, I really want to talk with you, Michael. And folks, we are talking with Michael Meta Webster, who is the author of The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. It's a wonderful new book. You want to get it and read it. We're going to talk about a few highlights of the book today and some things that aren't talked about in the book. But you're going to love this book, folks. I will make a prediction. I think there's probably 2% of the population won't like it, but they don't represent the highest development of the human species if they don't like this book. Let's, let's just make that clear. So we're going to talk about those values. And what you were just talking about, Michael, was exactly the important kind of things that I want to address. But there's some of the background that gets us there that is really important. I mentioned Bengal tigers already. You talk about salmon. And just a couple weeks ago on Spirit in Action, I had a guest who lives on the San Juan Islands off of state of Washington. And uh, so she was writing extensively in the, her group of essays about the southern resident killer whales, as they are known. I was just corrected. We have a house, a room in our house where there's paintings on the wall. One of them is of a shark and the other one is of a whale, an orca whale. But I was told by a nine-year-old who stayed here this past weekend that orcas are actually closer to dolphins than they are to whales. Could you tell me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so basically, if you look at the group of, that we think of as whales, there's, there's sort of two different main branches of that. One are what are called the baleen whales that are filter feeders. Think of like blue whales, humpback whales, they open their mouth and swallow things and use the baleen as a sieve. The other group are the toothed whales. These are the ones that, that, that have distinct teeth and tend to eat things that are larger. So these are dolphins, they're orcas. Orcas are basically a big dolphin and then things like sperm whales. Okay. What about killer whales, the southern resident that I interviewed about? So orca and killer whale are the same thing. And I'm no expert on them, but some people think there may be uh, different species or subspecies of these animals. They look very similar to us, but they behave very differently. The ones you're talking about tend to be primarily fish eaters, the ones in the San Juan Islands. And so they wait for the salmon to come back and catch those salmon. There's other ones that specialize on eating things like whales. I mentioned that again, because one of your chapters is about salmon and how much have gone, how they've migrated, how Bristol Bay became an important new home for them. And therefore, you're talking about, let me see, is that demographic or no? That reproductive? No. Genetic. Which, <laughs> moving up moving up to Bristol Bay, which, which rescue effect is that? Those are all at play in Bristol Bay. The one that really sits behind the fishery. So Bristol Bay is an interesting story because it's one of the most successful, sustainably managed fisheries you know, in our country's history. And, you know, for more than 100 years, people have been catching something like half the salmon that come back every year. And more, most recently, they just keep coming back in bigger and bigger numbers. I think this last summer was yet another record for returns to Bristol Bay. You know, the reasons for that are one, reproductive rescue. And the easier way to think about reproductive rescue rather than those sort of clunky terms is to think of it as a baby boom. And the way that most fisheries work is that when you go into a fishery, you catch some of the fish, you reduce the population size. Once you've done that, as long as you don't reduce it too low, the animals that are left, the fish that are left, tend to find their world a little less crowded. And maybe they get a little more food. Maybe it's a little easier to access mates. Maybe their babies have a little bit more space and there's not as much competition with other babies. And so when you do that, the response of those populations is usually to actually increase in population size. They have a baby boom where they have a, you know, a strong next generation. That next generation grows up into adulthood and you've got many, many more fish. 
in a fishery, what you're basically trying to do is keep harvesting fish at a rate where you can sort of hold them in a forever baby boom, where there's constantly lots of individuals entering the population. Once they get big enough, you catch some and then wait again until the next generation gets there. And Bristol Bay is one of the best examples in the world of where that's been done successfully. And with happy results in terms of the number of salmon that are originating there, how does that compare to worldwide what we're seeing in, in terms of salmon populations? In a lot of cases, it really depends. There's a lot of winners and losers in the salmon world where there have been populations that we've lost entirely. There are some that are not doing very well, and there's others that are doing extremely well. In some cases, the reasons why are pretty clear. Like I lived in the Pacific Northwest for a long time, where a lot of the rivers have been dammed. A lot of the habitat has been taken over for other reasons. The water has been used for other purposes. You know, the fish have been harvested at high rates. And you start adding all these different things up at the same time, even with a strong rescue effect, it may not be strong enough for those populations. And we've seen declines in many populations of salmon, particularly where human footprint is high. In Bristol Bay, some of the things that they've done there that make it different are that the habitat for salmon in that system is pretty much intact. There's low human densities, there's low development. So most of the places where salmon go to spawn and their their young go to rear as they're getting bigger are similar today than they were in the past. And that's been that's helped that population do much, much better. So salmon are a decidedly mixed bag from a management and a conservation perspective with some doing very poorly, some doing very well. The other interesting thing about salmon is that they've been introduced all over the world. And so they're not just confined to the places that they used to be. For example, the Great Lakes in North America have all, all the species of Pacific salmon as well as Atlantic salmon that have self-reproducing populations in them now. And some of the populations, some salmon have been introduced to the Southern Hemisphere. So there's Chilean wild salmon, there's New Zealand wild salmon that have started populations. So salmon have gotten to many new places where they're setting up new populations, uh, whereas while some of the old populations are not doing as well. My guess would be that if they came to the Great Lakes, it's because people brought them there. I imagine they could swim straight from Washington State down to New Zealand on their own. But was it people transporting them that made the difference? Absolutely, it was. And it's funny you mentioned that because there's one chapter in the book that's about Lake Victoria and cichlids in Lake Victoria. The person who first told me that story and got me excited about it also told me the story of salmon in the Great Lakes. And he was a professor I had when I was an undergrad. And he told me about how in the Great Lakes, in I believe it was the 1970s, there were lots and lots of changes going on, including the introduction of sea lampreys that came when the canals were built around Niagara Falls. They came from the St. Lawrence Seaway and made their way into the Great Lakes. Well, the sea lampreys were looking for big fish. They're, they're parasites. They attach to a bigger fish and they parasitize it. The big predator fish in the lake at that time was uh, called a lake trout. And the sea lampreys devastated lake trout populations and the lakes lost all their top predators or a lot of their top predators. In response, a lot of the smaller fish that the lake trout used to eat got super, super abundant, so abundant that they overtook their resources and they started having fish kills. So dead fish would wash up on the shores uh, in the summertime, creating a foul smell. And people wanted to do something about this. And they realized that the lake trout were not going to come back quickly enough because of the lampreys. So they decided to introduce salmon to try and fill some of that role and get the lakes back in order in order to reduce those fish kills. And in the end, it was extremely successful in terms of doing that because those smaller fish, those fish kills are rare now. And, you know, the salmon fishing industry in the Great Lakes, I think, is up into like a multi-billion dollar industry. 
Well, you know, I live very close, well, just a couple hours up to Lake Superior and a few hours to the east is Lake Michigan. I used to live in Milwaukee, right on Lake Michigan. So I have a fair amount of connection to these lakes and I still have never run into a salmon harvest there. And I've got uh, friends and kids, even though I'm vegetarian, they're, they're fishers and they're out there looking for these things. Well, you can certainly hire a boat to go out and fish them if you wish to. I'm curious, where exactly are you located? I live in a place called Eau Claire, Wisconsin. That's oh, where yeah. the home of Northern Spirit Radio is. Fantastic. Just so you know, I'm from Stoughton. You're from Stoughton. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got good friends down there, including relatives. And so, yeah, and you went to the university at, in Madison also as part of your development. Folks, we are speaking to Michael Meta Webster. You'll find a link to his book, The Rescue Effect, just recently released. It's the key to saving life on Earth. This is Spirit in Action, and our website is northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you'll find links to Michael and all the other guests we've had for the past 17 years for both Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. Track them down get a hold of the books, listen to the music, and enrich yourself. Uh, I just feel really fortunate to be able to be doing this work. So please post a comment when you come to our site. The way that we do this program is by your donations, not by government, not by corporations, because that always introduces different motivations. What's important to a corporation or to the government is not necessarily what's going to be important to you in terms of my programming. So please support us when you come by the site and also remember to support the local community radio stations wherever you live, like the 45 or so of them who carry our programs nationwide. And I want to ask you about this too, Michael, because it's very important to know a lot of times the people who fund the research you're doing will have their own interests and what kind of output you get from that. Is that true or is that false? I mean, is that your experience? Well, so I've worked on both sides of this. I've worked actually at, at a foundation as a grant officer, as well as at a nonprofit seeking out uh, funding for doing projects. And what I'll say is that you can imagine a whole range of different sets of interactions. In some cases, you know, funds are given with really you know, in an unrestricted way where there really are no strings in any way, shape or form attached. In other cases, like the foundation I used to work for, the project was really a an agreement between the grantee and the foundation about what did the grantee want to accomplish and, you know, what was important to the foundation. And then they would sort of build that plan together, obviously led by the grantee and their ideas, but it still had to meet the requirements of the foundation. And so in that case, you know, a whole plan was developed about what the project would look like moving forward. Now, I think there's probably a whole nother sort of branch of philanthropy where people are really trying to probably have undue influence on the outcome of the work they're supporting. But that's not a, an area that I've really ever really participated in. Because you are a professor of practice at NYU in Manhattan, what's your job description with respect to all, you know, you want to save life on earth. I'm pretty sure that's an important thing to you. Is that written into your job description there? It is not. No. I mean, my key responsibilities at the university revolve around teaching of undergraduates. But then in the rest of my time, I do things like work on research papers and do writing and try to communicate with peers, as well as obviously through things like this book with a broader audience about conservation and what our options are for trying to help save life on our changing world. 
Well, there's so many valuable stories in this book, folks, and I, I don't want to try and hit all of them in the hour that we have with Michael, but I do want to mention that people should learn about the mountain pygmy possum. It's a, it's a wonderful little glimpse in the richness of the earth. One that hit my heart, mainly because a couple of years ago, I read a book called The Overstory. I don't know if you've heard of that. One of the storylines in that book is about the American chestnut tree, how an American chestnut tree was transplanted over to the middle of Iowa, where there's no other chestnut trees around. And so the blight that killed off the chestnut trees didn't have an easy chain of communication to get to it. Just one of the small stories there. Uh, how much do you love American chestnuts? I think it's a really fascinating story. I actually just a couple of weeks ago uh, gave a keynote address at the annual symposium of the American Chestnut Foundation. So I got to meet a lot of the people who are working on trying to bring chestnuts back. And listen, I think chestnuts are a really fascinating and inspiring story because this is this super important tree species for timber, for wildlife habitat, for edible nuts that was a major part of eastern forests that disappeared almost entirely, you know, starting over 100 years ago. In that time, people have been looking at so many different ways of trying to bring this species back. And I think it's an interesting story because of really sort of the passion that people have brought to this and the sort of the lengths people will go to to try and save something or bring something back. You realize how much power we have when we choose to apply it. On top of that, the American chestnut is a really interesting question because the most promising way for bringing it back right now is through genetic modification. And that's a subject that's controversial with a lot of people who, who don't necessarily like things to be genetically modified and don't like that process. And so here we sit at this, this stage today where there are genetically modified American chestnut trees that have the potential to start bringing the species back after an absence of more than 100 years in many places. And then a whole new set of sort of modern trade-off decisions about, well, what's more important here? Is it bringing back this lost species or is it how we bring back this lost species? And how do we grapple with those, those sort of embedded values conversations that sit inside this decision? I think that's an absolutely fascinating story. And it speaks to a lot of what I think is coming in conservation, which is similar sorts of values questions about what do we really want our world to look like and how far are we willing to go to get it? Well, coral reefs, I think, must be particularly dear to your heart. Michael Mita Webster loves coral reefs, I'm thinking. And is that the foundation you were with, too? No. So my research, when I got my PhD, I did it on coral reefs because, you know, I decided when I was four years old watching Jacques Cousteau specials that I was going to be a marine biologist and do what he did. And coral reefs were always the place I wanted to go to. And so I always knew that's where I was headed. And I decided to get my degree studying them, but since then have done a lot more conservation work on coral reefs, trying to figure out how we can uh, try and save them. Well, let's step on to another species. You've already mentioned the cichlids, uh, the haplochromines cichlids, and I'm not sure I'm even pronouncing those words right. Uh, mouth brooding. That's a peculiar thing. Of course, we've already mentioned the pygmy possums. So they have their own way of taking care of their young. And then the mouth brooding ones, what do they do? So mouth brooding is something that I only know of it in fishes. And fishes usually have sort of two options when they're reproducing. One, they can sort of guard and protect their eggs and fry. Or two, they can just sort of leave them to chance, oftentimes, you know, taking off in the water or something like that and hope that they don't get eaten by predators. For the ones that guard them, there's a really unique way of guarding it, which is once the eggs are laid and fertilized, some fish will actually store the eggs in their mouth. 
as a place where they're relatively well protected from things that would come and eat them. And so the, the fish you're talking about are the, you pronounced it correctly, the haplochromine cichlids from, uh, in this case, Lake Victoria in Africa. And there are hundreds of species of these fish that have evolved in a really short time in that lake. And they're all mouth brooders. So they all store their eggs in the mouth uh, to try and protect them. In this case, it's the female that holds the eggs. In other species elsewhere, it's the males that hold the eggs. But I also wrote about in the book that there are some species of fish that have figured out how to thwart this behavior, including a group called the pedophages, which are literally the baby eaters. And what they do is some of them will come up to a female that has a brood in her mouth. They'll use their large rubbery mouth and try and grab her by the snout and literally suck the babies from her mouth in order to eat them. That sounds gross. <laughs> I just, I'm amazed at the infinite variety that we see. But these cichlids are particularly interesting in part, as you just mentioned, that they've been evolving so quickly. And how is it that you can get so many different species just appearing in, I'm talking in a 30-year a, a period, you have a number of new species appearing. How can that happen? Yeah. So it's been, as far as we know, really, really fast for these fish in this lake. And I talked with lots of different experts about sort of why is that? And they pointed to a whole bunch of different reasons. One was that, you know, when they got into Lake Victoria, when it filled up again about 15,000 years ago, it was a huge lake and had many, many different habitats. So the, the cichlids could go to this part of the lake and live this way, that part of the lake and live that way. And they got separated over time in those different parts of the lake doing different things, which is usually how evolution starts. You know, a, the same species gets to two different locations and they start doing different things under different conditions in those two different locations. So that's part of it. The people I spoke to also suggested those fish were generalists when they got there. They weren't, you know, really specific on one particular food. So it was easy for them to transition to many new different ways of living. But the piece that was, I think, most interesting to me in that chapter that some of the scientists pointed to were that the ancestor of these fish were actually uh, a hybrid. So two species of cichlid had come together. They'd been evolving on their own for a long time. And they produced a next generation of hybrid cichlids that were then able to reproduce. And what happened in that case is that that next generation essentially inherited two very different sets of genetic diversity, one from you know, their mother's side, one from their father's side. And in doing so, they had what scientists would call an unusually high genetic variance, where if you looked in their genome, you'd see many different sort of varieties on the theme for any given gene. So if it's a gene that codes for color, they might have multiple different varieties of that gene. One of the scientists I talked to sort of described it as, you know, think, about, think about it as a Lego set. You know, if you've got a Lego set for a car and you can build that car, if you move the pieces around a bit, you can build variations on the car. That's sort of normal evolution. But in this case, you're essentially taking a Lego set for a car and a Lego set for an airplane, and you're mixing them together. And now you've got all sorts of interesting parts, propellers and wheels and wings. You can start imagining all sorts of different ways of putting those pieces together into different forms. And th what that scientist described was that that's what she thinks is going on with these cichlids, is that they're experimenting sort of evolutionarily with all this genetic diversity into these different forms. And because that diversity already exists, evolution can happen really fast. You don't basically have to wait for mutations to arise in order for selection to occur. It's, again, amazing stories that you'll be reading in the book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth by Michael Mita Webster. 
cave paintings is one of the things you talk about. I certainly knew about that. Actually, when I was in South Eastern France, I wanted to go visit that. They happened to be closed. So I didn't get in to see some of the caves where this has happened, but the loss of the megafauna that is at the end of the last ice age or that is around there. That's not one of the extinction events that we look at. That's a minor extinction event. And it looks like maybe people had a role in that extinction. Yeah. Getting to the end of the Pleistocene, so the last series of ice ages, what we see in the fossil record is that a lot of big animals, particularly big mammals, disappeared that were once roaming the earth. You know, things like mammoths and mastodons, but also rhinoceroses in Europe and saber-toothed cats in North America and giant kangaroos in New Zealand and huge moa birds, or pardon me, kangaroos in Australia and huge moa birds in New Zealand, that there's this period of time in our history where many sort of large animals disappeared. And it overlaps roughly with people expanding out of Africa and getting to different locations in Europe, in Asia, in North and South America, in Australia, in New Zealand. It's not perfect. It's not a smoking gun explanation, but it's reasonable to assume that human hunters had something to do with some of these extinctions. And if you were to look at this from a geological perspective, you would probably argue it's part of the same extinction event we're having right now because it's related to the rise of humans. And so, you know, 30,000 years in a geological sense is not a super long time, but it looks like it was a different set of processes that happened with waves of people arriving in new places around the world. And so when we look at places like North America and Asia and Europe and look at the diversity of big animals that are there today, it's hugely reduced in a lot of cases from what would have been there, say, 30,000 years ago. We're looking at these extinction events in part because we'd like to not be causing unnecessary extinctions. I I hope I say that right, because the values that go into choosing which species survives and which doesn't, which ones we care about, it makes a big difference. Evidently, we didn't care about passenger pigeons. I understand they were exterminated, that they're or maybe extirpated. I saw you use that word in there, and I'm not sure what the difference is. But the the point being, passenger pigeons were wiped out. There used to be millions and millions of them, and evidently we killed all of them. And why don't we care about that? And why don't we want to resurrect them with our genetics? The chapter that you're talking about right now is about bringing species back that have gone extinct and using sort of Jurassic Park-esque technology to do that. In that chapter, I don't actually talk about passenger pigeons, but maybe it comes as a surprise, maybe not. There's somebody who's trying to bring back passenger pigeons using the same kind of technology. I actually just saw him give a talk a couple of weeks ago. And the reality is that you're right. There were probably billions of passenger pigeons in North America. It may well have been the most abundant bird on the planet. And the key to the loss of the passenger pigeons was hunting. In this case, hunting for food. People hunted them and sold them for food at a rate that was unsustainable. And it was really pretty short. I mean, these things were wiped out in the course of, I forget the exact number, but like 10 or 20 years from super big populations to almost non-existent. And so that is a species that there's no question that humans caused the extinction of. And there's a, a sort of an ethical question of, are we responsible for, if we have the technology, trying to bring it back? And so there is a group that is trying to figure out how to do this. But one of the challenges with this technology is that it's not possible to just like breathe life into a museum specimen of a passenger pigeon and have a passenger pigeon on the planet again. The best case scenario for what we could do today with a species like this is try and create something new 
that has some of the traits of the species that's been gone. So in this case, the proposal would be to use the passenger pigeon's closest relative, which I think is the band-tailed pigeon that lives on the West Coast, and genetically modify it to take its genome sequence and go to key genes in that sequence that we know were different in passenger pigeons from museum samples and change the band-tailed pigeon genes to look like passenger pigeon genes. In the book, one of the scientists I talked to described this process as you know, creating a precision hybrid where you start with an existing animal and you try and modify it in very specific ways to make it more like something that's been lost. Let's maybe dive in a little bit more deeply about the ethics. Why do we do it? Why do we care if other species survive? Is it all just utilitarian? Is that the safe way to think of it? Those of us with a more overarching spiritual view are likely to see humans as one species amongst many, whereas uh, we have a natural ego defense that says we are the ones that matter. How do you sort that out yourself or how do you think it's best in, in terms of the future of the world, the rescue effect, the key to saving life on earth? Which viewpoint is particularly helpful in getting there? So with respect to resurrective rescue, should we be trying to think, bring things back? That's certainly one of the questions, but it's also, you mentioned, you know, having um, nature as an art museum. You know, we want to save a copy of that versus parenting, saying we're going to see evolution. You know, you raise them and set them free to evolve on their own. As regards other species besides the human species, the value for some people is simply economic. Uh, we like the Nile perch because we can harvest a lot of them and sell them for a lot of money. So Lake Victoria, watch out, here they come, you know, and uh, the motives and, and the motivations are very differing. And uh, people, I think, disagree about what is a good motive. Absolutely. And this is what a lot of sort of discussions and arguments and disagreements in conservation more broadly are about, which is, well, why are we trying to do this? And in some ways, you know, one of the more easy reasons is the, is the economic motivation, right? So why should you save species X? Well, it's worth money. Okay. You know, a lot of people can get behind that, but that's not the only reason that people care about nature. And it's generally for me, not the reason that comes up in my mind. You know, I tend to be excited about what a lot of people would call the existence value of nature, which is, I just want to know that it's there. I want it to exist, even if I never have a chance to witness or interact with a particular species in a particular place, just knowing that it exists on the planet is important to me. But it's very difficult to monetize that. And it's very difficult to turn that into action. And so what usually happens is that the things that we choose to protect or the things that we're willing to put the most effort into are those organisms that have some sort of constituency where a group of people have decided for whatever reason that they value this organism and they want this organism to persist. You can see that in the chestnut example, which is people so want an American chestnut to come back to these forests that they're willing to spend more than a century trying to breed back a version that can resist that introduced disease. Similarly with the mountain pygmy possum, which we haven't talked about very much, which is this small marsupial that lives in snowy mountains in Australia, that species doesn't actually have a lot of economic value. It's not clear you know, what, what it's bringing in terms of economic value, but it's captured the imaginations of people 
you know, in the same way that you might imagine like a panda captures the imagination of people to the point where they're willing to go to some pretty extreme lengths just to ensure that that organism is able to persist in that ecosystem. And then there's another way of looking at it where you can actually look at it from the other end and just say, listen, there's a values decision about whether humans should ever be responsible for causing an extinction. If you think about what a species is, you know, it's the present day representative of uh, an evolutionary line that goes back billions of years that through that time, there has been this successful line that has survived again and again and again and again to make it to whatever form it is in today. That in itself is a, you know, a sort of a beautiful representation of nature. It's a remarkable thing that that, that that exists. Who are we then to come in and be responsible for that lineage disappearing from the planet forever? So there's another powerful sort of values argument to make there. And where do you land? I tend to think that humans shouldn't be causing extinction. To me, that has been part of my motivation for working in conservation, though I don't talk about that a lot in the book. My goal in the book is not to tell people what they should think or even to share with them too much about what I think. What I want them to do when they read the book is to decide for themselves. I want them to read about these amazing creatures, these amazing places, these big challenges in conservation, and I want them to wrestle with it a little bit. And ask themselves questions like, well, what would I do here? What do I think the right answer is? I think that's where the bigger contribution is because we're at a point in our history where we've lost very few of the species that were present when sort of humanity began to, you know, explore the planet. It's a small, small fraction, but we have the potential to lose a lot more. And lots and lots of decisions are coming about, well, what should we do here? What should we do here? What should we do here? And those are tough decisions that don't necessarily have a clear cut answer. I think it's really useful for people to you know, spend some time thinking about what is their opinion and what do they think the right answer is, because that's going to contribute to a healthy dialogue as we get to more and more questions about what to do, just like we're in, in this right now around American chestnut. The approval process is underway. By next year, those genetically modified American chestnuts could be approved for planting more broadly. I entirely believe this won't be the last genetically modified for conservation species out there. We're going to have to ask ourselves, is this a direction we want to go? Many tough questions that you're addressing. I want to ask you the toughest one now. And this is with the context that basically all life on earth is invasive. We're all invasive species. They originate somewhere and then they go everywhere else. That's the way that life lives on this planet. And so the fact that we have trees, the chapter that you write about Ascension Island and uh, the species that got imported there, and some people are saying, no, that's not purist. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It wasn't like it was when Napoleon was exported and on the nearest island. <laughs> anyway, that, that story's in the, fo- in the book, folks. Uh, so, you know, read The Rescue Effect and you'll find that story. But we're all invasive species. Some invasive species just are jerks, and amongst them is buckthorn. Where do you come down on the buckthorn? I mean, uh, my friend Sam Thayer-Price, who is a preeminent forager, he teaches so many people, his books are the best-selling ones in the United States. We were looking at the buckthorns as we were walking around this past weekend, and he was saying they'll grow up, they'll overtake, and eventually the big trees, the oaks and maples and other things, are going to be shaded out. Well, they'll die off, and then they won't be able to grow up because the buckthorn will cover it, and we'll have nothing but buckthorn everywhere. That's a sad future for me. So <laughs> what's your take on the buckthorn, and isn't that another species we should be loving? 
So I don't know anything about Buckthorn, but I think you're getting at an important point there. And I'm happy to take that point on, which is how do we think about novelty in nature? Because not only are species being imported from long distances, I don't know where Buckthorn comes from, but I'm assuming it didn't come from, from your area and has since moved in, probably brought in accidentally or purposely by people. That's happening, but also the species that live in a place are starting to move, especially with climate change. We're seeing a lot of species movement around the planet. And what that means is that essentially every ecosystem on the planet is starting into this process of reorganization where in 100 years, the species mix you see anywhere is going to be different from the species mix you see today. And with that comes uh, sort of uh, sometimes a messy process as one species takes over and another one comes in and you get these layered effects on top of that. For the species that come in and make really big changes, as you're describing with buckthorn, it makes every bit of sense to look at that. And if you've got a woodlot and you don't want that to happen to your woodlot, go down and remove your buckthorn from that system or try and find some way to get rid of them. Sure, why wouldn't you do that? You also have the option if you want to promote those oaks and maples of planting them and trying to ensure what that next generation looks like. The nice thing about those trees is that they often live several hundred years. So you can leave your, your, your fingerprint on that system for a long time if you can get them to survive up to a height where they can then look after themselves. And so my feeling is that, yes, where you want something out of an ecosystem, you're clear about what value you're trying to get, and you have a way of getting from here to there, of course, that makes sense to me. Go ahead and do that. But I think at the same time, we need to be picking and choosing our battles here, which means that not every new species in a place is inherently bad. And that I think in conservation for a long time, we've, we've sort of had this sort of two categories of species. There are those species that are supposed to be there that we call natives. And there are those species that are not supposed to be there, which we call exotic or invasive. And there's this sort of built-in knee-jerk reaction. Natives are good. The other ones are bad at all costs. And I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that new species coming into ecosystems often bring something new to that ecosystem. Sometimes that new thing is valuable. And the idea that we have a knee-jerk reaction that says it's inherently bad because it's new, I think that's something we have to examine in conservation and maybe developed a more nuanced point of view about when it really does make sense to be fighting against the buckthorns of the world and when it doesn't. There's so many profound thoughts that are brought up in the book, but again, I'm going to come back to the most important thing people should know about the rescue effect, the key to saving life on earth. It is a fun, engaging, exciting book to read. I could hardly put it down myself, Michael, as I read it. Michael Meta Webster is the author. We have links on NordenSpiritRadio.org, so you can follow up and read the whole book. We scrape the surface here. There's depth and texture in every chapter in this book, and I really want to recommend people get a hold of it. And Michael, I am so thankful. I think your students at NYU in Manhattan are so lucky to have you as a professor of practice there teaching them. I really think that you've got to bring riches to their life. I would be surprised if you didn't end up breeding a whole generation of people exciting to save life on earth through engaging with nature. Thank you so much for being here today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And again, the links are on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.